I'm Chris Costello, and welcome to On Cue. I look forward to sharing with you topics and guests which may be out of the ordinary and some very extraordinary people who are making a noticeable imprint in today's world. If you were a kid growing up in the 50s, long before Disneyland, Disney World, Universal Theme Park, or Six Flags, then you might remember the thrill of going to a good old amusement park where you could feast on cotton candy, popcorn, corn dogs on a stick, and get on as many rides as your parents would allow. Remember that? I loved the roller coaster, and it's still one of my favorite of the amusement park rides to this day, although I have to admit they're a little bit more sophisticated and hair-raisingly fast. But have you ever wondered just where and how the roller coaster, or even the merry-go-round and Ferris wheel first came about? Where, when, how did the amusement parks first originate and why? Here to take us on this amusement park journey is veteran journalist and historian of popular culture, Stephen M. Silverman, author of the newly released 432-page book, The Amusement Park, published by Black Dog and Leventhal, and which you can purchase through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, even through your local bookstores in your area. Stephen has appeared on numerous television and radio shows, and I'm thrilled to have him here with me on On Cue. Stephen, it's so good to have you here on the show. I'm an amusement park fan. I am a fanatic. Your book, first of all, is beautiful. It's very heavy, but it's absolutely beautiful. And before even turning the first page, I had to look at the cover, and it reads, The 900 years of thrills and spills and the dreamers and the schemers who built them. And I'm thinking, 900 years? I thought that the amusement park came like turn of the century. That's exactly why I put 900 years on the cover. And people have been saying, as soon as they see the book and encounter me, don't you mean 900? Isn't it a typo? No. Uh, <laughs> 900 really would even take us back to Coney Island. Well, no, I was going to say he missed the one in front of the nine. <laughs> so <we're, laughs> that would make a little more sense. But no, indeed, it, it was the 12th century. And that's wow. 100 years. And it began, I'll give you the cast of characters. Bear in mind that there was a terrible sea disaster in England. It was the Titanic of its time. And uh, it was called the White Ship. It was the year 1120, November 25th, 1120. And the heir to the throne went down. It was crossing the English Channel. His name was Prince William. Well, you know, they don't really have a, a huge variety of names that run. No. <laughs> anyway, Prince William went down. This destroyed his father, King Henry I. You know of many Henrys. Um, oh, yes. This was, but this was the first, and it plunged the nation, but it's particularly King Henry into in terrible mourning. And he had a jester named Rahair. Now, Rahair was quite the opportunist and quite the social climber. And he, he knew that the king was terribly superstitious, and particularly anything that appeared in a dream, the king would take as gospel. So Rahir convinced him that St. Bartholomew came to him in a dream. And what was going on in the dream was that a dragon had swept down from the sky, collected Rahir, and dangled him over a cliff. But it was St. Bartholomew who came in, sweeping in to rescue him. And the king thought, you know, all right, if you dreamt it, it had to be true. And what Bartholomew wanted was a festival in his honor, which Rahir would, of course, oversee. 
And the king granted uh, the land for the what became St. Bartholomew's Fair. It took place in London, uh, a play on the jousting field that had been smoothed out. It became known as Smithfield. And it began in 1133. It originally started as a religious festival and trade fair, but it evolved, or I suppose we should say devolved, uh, because it really became wow. a two-week bacchanalia. Wow. So that's really what created the first idea of the amusement park. Because it had is... three elements. It had food, which was necessary. It had entertainment. And it had very primitive rides. You know, as time went on, it lasted for 700 years. It was always the last two weeks in August. If it hadn't been for William, you and I would not be talking today. Um, My God. And I wouldn't have had this passion for the amusement parks as I had as a kid, which rolled over, of course, into my adult life. But let's take the roller coaster, okay, as an example. Now, the roller coaster really did not start 900 years ago, but there was a famous royal also involved with the roller coaster. In Russia. First of all, you know, it snows in Russia 10 months out of the year. Uh, the Russians seem to get a kick out of putting together wooden structures and then sleds to slope. And in winter, they'd splash it with water, it would freeze, and you would go gliding down. And originally called ice mountains, then called Russian mountains. To this day, everywhere but in America, roller coasters are called Russian mountains. Um, oh, really? I didn't know yeah, that. In Europe? They'll say, oh, you know, that's a good immune park. It's a great Russian mountain. Catherine the Great, who was, you know, known as a good time gal, she loved her Russian mountains and she could afford the best. And she had very elaborate giant sleds, but Russian mountains constructed at her estates. And when the French came to fight the War of 1812, they saw these Russian mountains and took the notion of them back with them to France. And in Paris, there were pleasure gardens, they called them. And it was the French, in all likelihood, who added wheels to the coasters, thus making them roller coasters. And they could be enjoyed year-round. Okay, I got it. So then the roller coaster actually then was the name given when it came to America, correct? America. Yeah. The notion of it did not travel the ocean. And what happened here was that there was a, a mine train in Pennsylvania and the ore had been uh, mined out of the mountain. And the train that used to take the ore from the river bank up to the mountaintop had been put in service, but, you know, was no longer needed in terms of mining. And the city fathers, who was in a place called Mawchunk, Pennsylvania, they said, well, why don't we make it a tourist ride? And this had never been done before. And they had had hairpin turns, and it was quite a devilish ride. The number two tourist attraction in America behind Niagara Falls, and it ran right up until the Depression. I never knew that. See, I thought the roller coaster actually came in like around turn of the century, but it started at like a Coney Island. Well, you know, I have no idea. That. All right. So the next step was there was a fellow named Lamarcus Thompson, and he was a tinkerer. But he was also a very successful garment manufacturer in the Midwest. He was also somewhat of a religious zealot. And he built what was called the first switchback railroad. It went six miles an hour. And it was called switchback because the passengers would get on this ride, ride down the track, 
at six miles an hour and then stand up. They would turn the car around and send it back the other way. And he opened the first one in 1884 in a resort called Coney Island. Now, the reason he picked Coney Island was it was already the premier beach resort in America. And you could get whatever you want. It was really Sin City. And as I said, he was a religious zealot. He thought if couples could get their thrills on this device of his, they wouldn't do the really sinful act of dancing. Ah, oh, I never had any idea about that. Yeah, but nobody had ever experienced anything like that. He then went to Europe and built really, again, elaborate roller coasters. But what brought it back to America was really what launched amusement parks in the United States. And that was the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Wow. Now I heard that a war game became a popular kiddie ride. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, I was never like partial to wanting to go on the carousel rides, but I thought they were all so beautiful. And I loved the music that played and the horses going up and down. But it actually began as a war game. This is that true. allowed soldiers to practice their battles atop these mechanical horses. Right. And I was so curious. <laughs> I love that stuff. It wasn't just, I mean, yes, the soldiers used it. It was utilitarian and their servants, you know, pushed them. There was no steam engine uh, yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, but once there was, it became sort of polite practice. Again, couples, pleasure gardens started putting them in, and they were various, mostly in Paris at first, uh, mm -hmm. various devices that would spin and go in circles. And then, you know, animals, it, it was the Americans who really perfected the art of the carousel horse, although it was the immigrant carvers who had come over from Europe, mm -hmm. did them in Coney Island and then Philadelphia. But before the name carousel was uh, given to it, which I would assume it came from France, weren't they also called roundabouts? They had all uh, sorts of names, including, let's face it, merry-go-round. And some people argue the difference between a carousel and a merry-go-round. They'll claim, you know, one has a menagerie, not just horses, or it goes mm -hmm. counterclockwise as opposed to clockwise. Interesting. So what about the Ferris wheel? Now, I heard that they used to refer to that as the up and down yes. before it was a Ferris wheel. Very early on. It really, I mean, it was primitive. It was found in the desert in Constantinople in the 12th century. I mean, with the carousel even, the the Aztecs used to spin around a pole and uh, sort of got the notion going. But in terms of the Ferris wheel, well, it was George Ferris. There was such a person. Mm -hmm. What happened was, again, the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago followed the Paris Exhibition. The Paris Exhibition had a steel structure that became the symbol of the fair. It still stands. It's the Eiffel Tower. So when they were putting together the Chicago World's Fair, the, the governors said, we need a signature attraction. And even Eiffel submitted an idea. Uh, again, it just it was like another Eiffel Tower. Because it was Illinois, the land of Lincoln, someone thought, well, we should make a tower out of logs, log cabin, stick a log cabin at the top. But uh, Ferris was a mechanical engineer from Pittsburgh. He came from quite a distinguished family. His grandfather was highly instrumental in the Underground Railroad. And his uncle introduced popcorn to Queen Victoria. But, <laughs> well, you know, she took it and strung it and put it around her Christmas tree. So Ferris was at a luncheon when Burnham, the head of the fair, you know, was castigating 
Chicagoans, look, you know, you, you can't, you're not clever enough to come up with something. And Ferris began drawing on his napkin. This, I mean, this is apocryphal, but it's a great story. What became the Ferris wheel. But the fair was really terrible to him. Whereas Eiffel, Paris subsidized his tower and he had a good running start. Ferris, they really cheated him. They didn't help him at all. First of all, they said It'll, it won't work. No one will get on it. This thing is too big and too scary. Get your own financing, which he did. The fair opened and it got wonderful reviews. You know, it's where Cracker Jacks was introduced, Angelina's Pancakes. Um, really? Oh, yeah. The Chicago World's Fair, all the science and industry that was being saluted at the fair, that was fine, but it was like going to a museum. What made the money at the fair was the midway. The midway was where anything went. And the big attraction was a belly dancer named Little Egypt. Oh, I remember. There was yeah. a song. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, the fellow who designed the Midway, he was only 23 years old. They had a Harvard professor in charge of the Midway, and they got rid of him right off because he didn't get it. I mean, Harvard professors are not about fun. <laughs> uh, so this fellow who had done very well and had been to the Paris exhibition named Solomon Bloom, he hadn't even gone to school, but he was a genius. He brought Little Egypt over and the entire Arabian village around it. He also wrote her theme song which you may recognize from Bugs Bunny cartoons. That's it. That's it. I remember that. We used to sing, there's a place in France where the ladies wear no pants. There's a dance. They do. Anyway, I, I, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was all from the fair. But Solomon Bloom's real stroke of genius with Little Egypt was telling all the clergy about it in Chicago and getting them to condemn Little Egypt, and that guaranteed sold-out performances. <laughs> okay, so the other, the other big attraction on the Midway was the Ferris wheel when it finally opened. What convinced people that it was safe, there was a terrible storm that hit Chicago. It damaged the hot air balloon at the fair, but the Ferris wheel didn't budge, and it became the hit of the fair. So the Chicago's World Fair... That particular World Fair, 1893, would you say that that is what had an influence on the amusement parks? It lit the fire under the cracker. <laughs> okay. I like that. <laughs> I've never heard that expression. Or under the Cracker Jacks. <laughs> I'm still amazed. I never knew Cracker Jacks with the prize in the box right. started at the World's Fair. Yeah. And I still love those as a kid. Of course. Um, so let's talk about another place. You just mentioned it. Coney Island. Right. Um, when I think, I was born and raised on the West Coast. So when I think of Coney Island, I always think of the Coney Island hot dog. Right. Um, I think of, you know, just an amusement park, uh, which I think isn't it having some kind of a revival? It was you know, Coney Island. Yeah, today? right now it's fun to go to Coney Island. The thrill rides, it's very colorful again and it's, it's safe again, which it had uh -huh. for a few decades. But no, Coney Island's heyday was really the turn of the century. What happened was, right after the Chicago World's Fair, again, there was a daredevil, very famous in his time, named Paul Boynton, and he swam the Irish Sea in his vulcanized rubber wetsuit, which he tried to sell to the public to say, you know, anyone can survive a storm. You can swim the deep sea in this thing. He looked like something out of Jules Verne. And then when he was in Europe, he saw this ride that was basically a flat bottom boat that would go down a slide and splash into a lake. 
he bought it, he refined it, he called it the Shoot to Shoots, and he franchised it. But first he opened it in a park right after the fair closed the following year, Paul Boynton Shoots Park in Chicago. It was the first park in the world to feature only mechanical rides and to put a fence around itself and charge admission to get in. So that was really the first amusement park. And it was so successful that he went to Coney Island. And he had the shoot to shoots. And he took over marshland. It was nothing. He put up a ramshackle park. It was Paul Boynton's Sea Lion Park. And people came. But his mistake was he didn't change it. He kept it the same. The next season, it was the same thing that had been the year before. And, you know, New Yorkers have very short attention spans. Uh, so there was another fellow in Coney Island named George Tellew, whose family had been there since the Civil War, renting out bathing costumes and selling beer. And Tellew thought, you know, Boynton's Park was successful. I'll open a park, but I need a signature ride. He went to England. He found this mechanical horse contraption, and he opened Steeplechase Park. That became tremendously successful. He then went to the 1901 Buffalo World's Fair, where these two fellows had concocted a trip to the moon attraction. The 1901 Buffalo Fair is where President McKinley was shot, and that's what it's famous for. And, that, and then Teddy Roosevelt became president. But there were two attractions there, uh, the trip to the moon, which was, you know, like going into a World's Fair pavilion, you boarded, again, this Jules Verne-looking contraption, and it had all these great special effects that made you feel like you were actually leaving Buffalo and fly toward the moon. And then you'd land, and you'd be greeted by small people dressed as moon people, and they served hors d'oeuvres of green cheese, and they would escort you to a song <laughs> dance show with sort of well-fed-looking rockette-style dancers doing a moonwalk. It was fun and games, and then they'd lead you to the souvenir shop. Again, nothing is new. Uh, and, and you would escape. The other thing these two guys had, their names were Skip Dundee and Frederick Thompson. They had invented a double Ferris wheel. This is 1901. Um, so Tillyu brings the guys back and strikes a deal with them. And they, again, they do very well the first season. And the second season, he said, well, you know, New Yorkers need something new. I'm not going to pay you as much. We're not going to be 50-50 partners anymore. They said goodbye. They bought Paul Boynton's Sea Lion Park, and they built the greatest amusement park that ever was until Disneyland, uh, Luna Park, <laughs> 1904. Now, would you say that that was the heyday of the amusement park, at least here in America? Yes, absolutely. Wow. It was the heyday of Coney Island amusement park. Okay. By 1910, there were 2,000 amusement parks in America. Now, bear in mind, we didn't have cars yet. We didn't have, we really didn't have movies yet. Amusement parks were the mass entertainment, and they were built by the railroad barons. If you lived in a, in a town of at least 10,000, 20,000 people, you had your own amusement park. And they wanted their passengers to ride the trolleys all week long and to the end of the line. That's where the amusement parks were. Would you say that the three main rides, though, when we think of amusement parks to this day, still remains roller coaster number one? Because that's the first sound you hear when you enter it's an amusement park. Card. It's the drawing. It is. It is a drawing card. Is the roller coaster, the merry-go-round, the Ferris wheel? Are those still the three well, top attractions? Three, those are the, the basic three food groups. 
Amazing. And another thing I wanted to ask you, too, is in reading your book, organized crime, did it play in any part of the development of the amusement park, especially back in New York, where, of course... Yes. <laughs> Al Capone got his start as a bouncer in Coney Island. Really? I didn't know that. Yep. Before he went to Chicago. He got the name Scarface in a bar in Coney Island. He got fresh with one of the uh, women customers, and her brother didn't like it, and he happened to have a knife in his pocket. Wow. The gangsters really played a, a heavy part on the steel pier and the, the pleasure piers in Atlantic City. And then later, uh, during Prohibition... I mean, amusement parks went through various evolutions. Once the Model T was introduced, people didn't need amusement parks for their mechanical thrills. They were getting their own behind the wheel. So that then introduced the golden age of the roller coaster where you had the super thrill. Mm -hmm. But during Prohibition, the amusement parks were simply fronts for speakeasies. You went there and the pleasure piers, you know, is where you would board the launch to go out three miles so you could gamble and drink. Interesting. I had no idea. I had, first of all, I, I had no idea that Al Capone got a start in Coney Island. It makes you wonder how many more of these guys got their start in Coney Island. I know Bud Abbott did. This he, is he got a start. I was about to say, it you is. have your own link. Not I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so we're jumping into modern day times. In modern day times, let's look back in the 50s, because it's still modern. What was so revolutionary about Walt Disney's approach to the amusement park. I mean, it's a little bit more upscale. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, what he did is what he always did. Uh, and it, it wasn't so revolutionary. It was traditional, but he improved upon tradition. He very cleverly studied every amusement park that was still going. During the war, uh, amusement parks were still popular because it was a place where the military uh, fellows on dates could take their girls. So they rode that out. And then after the war, they really went into decline. And television was the, the final death row because kids could stay home and watch Hopalong Cassidy and Howdy Doody. They didn't want to go to amusement parks. But what Walt Disney did is exactly what he did with his featured animated movies. He would take a famous old story and improve it. You know, he would take a grim fairy tale and make it the Disney touch. Well, he took all the best elements of the Chicago World's Fair, where his father had been a carpenter, Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen, which he really closely studied, especially the landscaping there. He said, you know, the flowers and the trees here are so beautiful and so well laid out that it prevents people from littering. I'm going to have that in my park. You know, he had a devil of a time getting the money for it. Why does this cartoonist want to build a kiddie park? Is he crazy? And even his brother, who was the business manager of the Disney company, was against it. But Walt Disney would not be deterred. And he, he, even his brother joined him. And ABC Television financed it in exchange for Disney doing a, a weekly Sunday night show, which he very cleverly turned into the biggest infomercial about this amusement park he was building in Anaheim, California. I saw that. There's some news footage on that, um, yeah. which is very fascinating. I, in fact, I was there, Stephen, opening day at Disneyland you know, with my I, dad. Well, you were a VIP. Absolutely. And I remember vividly how, even as a kid, you know, I was stepping into another world. You entered through Main Street. It was that turn-of-the-century feel. Right. Everything was bustling. Everything was alive. Uh, but then what fascinated me as a kid was the House of Tomorrow. 
Mm. Or you could go inside the house of tomorrow. There was an electric toothbrush that hadn't even, well, it was there and it did come about maybe 20, 30 years later. Uh, Everything was so unique. It was really Disney-esque. I, you know, you got into the park, it was all Disney. Uh, and I loved it. I, I still like going to Disney. Absolutely. Although I do stay away from the teacups. I cannot okay. do the teacups. <laughs> but, but I also like POP, Pacific Ocean Park. Right. Uh, which was a big, big draw. Before it even came Disneyland. about because of the success of Disneyland. That was financed by CBS and Santa Anita, which was owned by Hal Roach. Uh, of our gang comedies and Laurel and Hardy um, and his partner, whose idea what he wanted Walt Disney to build Disneyland in Newport Beach or, or in one of the beaches. Walt didn't want to be by the beach. He knew the elements would ruin and rust his rides. And he thought it would bring about sort of a carnival crowd. But P.O.P. was bright and shiny and sort of space agey. It opened in 19, Disneyland opened in 55. P.O.P. opened mm-hmm. 58. And that first year had more visitors than Disneyland. Well, and I think, too, with, with P.O.P., it was a lot closer location-wise to a lot of people like myself who grew up in the Valley. Right. Uh, I do remember, too, that they even had um organ grinder with a monkey yes. that would stroll. Right. P.O.P., which I loved. Uh, but again, I go back to the roller coaster. That was the first thing we would hear. It was We would go through that tunnel. They had the Neptune Tunnel. Oh, it was a wonderful walk- entrance. Oh my gosh, you'd walk through that tunnel and all of a sudden you would hear the screams and the thrills and the, the wheels moving on the track of the roller coaster. And I think that's where I really got my first ride on a roller coaster. You even and that's smell that, the that, axle grease combined with the, the salt air. It was an aphrodisiac. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Good way to put it. I like that. Okay, so we're dealing with the amusement parks of today. And I think I told you I was up at uh, Universal couple of years ago and i rode on a very popular newly opened ride yes and i thought i got to get off this ride (laughs) my equilibrium was shot it i have never had so many twists turns going up going down it it absolutely destroyed me and i thought i can't do another one of these rides everybody wanted to go back on i said i'll sit this one out where are amusement parks today, they seem to be getting more elaborate, more extreme. What's your take on it? They are. They're competing. I mean, the ride I think you're referring to is the Harry Potter Hogwarts uh, yeah. experience. <laughs> yeah. It, Universal has a different audience than Disney's. The Disney audience for, is really for children and their grandparents, whereas Universal aims for teenagers and thrill seekers. And mm-hmm. they're finally neck and neck. I'm, and especially in Orlando, Florida, where Universal is expanding. I mean, one theory being why Disney bought Star Wars for $4 billion was so it could put Star Wars into Disneyland and Disney World, just as Harry Potter is in the uni- all of the Universal parks. And they, they are competing neck and neck. You know, for my money, I, I can express my opinion. <laughs> um, I, I still think Disney is is the gold standard. And uh, oh, it is, it is. But they can't, you know. But one must never be complacent. Well, when POP opened, what Walt did was step up his game, and he opened the next summer. He introduced the e-ticket attraction, the monorail, the submarine, and so the. So I remember, I remember the e-tickets. Yeah, I think I still have some somewhere in in the storage unit an e-ticket. Well, look at what they sell for on eBay, and you may get them out of your storage unit. 
<laughs> they're all doing well. They're all expanding. I flew all over the world for this book. I was the first uh, journalist inside Shanghai Disneyland, which was spectacular. Oh my! But I also went to Dubai, where the, the fastest roller in the world. Really? It's 150 miles an hour in Ferrari World, uh, the only amusement park in the world dedicated to an Italian race car. And it's pretty spectacular. Oh. You have to wear goggles to keep the bugs out of your eyes. Stephen, did you go? You went on that? 150 miles an hour? I sure watched a lot of people go on it. Oh, my God. I don't like coasters the way you do. <laughs> oh, no, but I have to tell you, I love virtual reality. Now, when I was up at Universal, before they took it out, I think it was the Back to the Future ride where you get into the DeLorean. Right. Now, that was thrilling to me because you got the feel of that roller coaster. Uh, only you were stationary, and yet they would give the vibration to the right. car uh, or turn it a little bit. But, uh, you know, to me, that's kind of like uh, taking me beyond the roller coaster. Well, the Millennium Falcon in Galaxy's Edge in Disneyland is like the back of the future ride on steroids. <laughs> and then in Orlando, they've got, in the world of Pandora, they've got the, the flight, which is just, it's exhilarating. See, something like that to me is so beautiful. I would definitely go on that. So I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Now, let's say there's a time machine, okay? Yeah. What park would you have liked to visit and why? If, you, if there was a time machine in front of you right now that you could step into. Easy. 1904, Luna Park, Coney Island. Really? Out of yeah. all the amusement parks in the world, why that one? Because it was the first of its kind. It offered everything, and it was very compact. And it also did what we've forgotten about. Amusement parks, even going back to Bartholomew Fair and then the Pleasure Gardens of England and Paris and even New York, it's a place where the social classes, which never used to mingle, would mix. And whether you were rich or poor, if you plunked down your nickel, you'd get a kick out of being spun around or being, you know, <laughs> racing or being made a fool of or whatever. But really, it was Luna Park that first transcended you into a different world. Wow. <laughs> the greatest ride in the world, which incorporates virtual reality which has all the wow factor of the Harry Potter ride, and yet, <laughs> amazingly, you don't get seasick, is the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Shanghai. It's completely different from the one in any of the parks in this country. It is amazing. <laughs> there is no other word. Really? Oh, yeah. I've got to bring that one up because I love Pirates of the Caribbean at Disney. It was right next to the Blue Bayou Cafe or, or restaurant. Right. Where I love to have dinner, but I loved the pirates. Of course, no, it's oh, yeah. wonderful, but it doesn't compare. But you know, it's fifty years old, and the advances in technology, and the, the one in uh, Shanghai also pays tribute to it in a very witty fashion. I don't want to spoil anything for you, but and it's just a terrific ride. Well, also, as you know, I'm a travel agent. I book a lot of cruise ships. You cannot believe some of the wow factors on board these ships, which are now almost bringing in an amusement park type theme, you right. know, with these extreme water slides. It's just a big wow. Yeah. If you want to go to an amusement park and, and a high-end resort, you got it on a cruise ship. Exactly. Um, Stephen, I could talk to you for hours. I've, I've still got so many questions, but I'm yeah. going to encourage... Everybody who is listening to this podcast, 
to go out, please purchase this book. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's called The Amusement Park. And also, don't forget your local bookstores in your area. Run out today. Get this book. It is amazing. The visuals, the photographs, the text, which is very user-friendly. It's easy to read. It's captivating. It just draws you right in. Uh, you're amazing. I'm going to go out and get all of your books because I know I you've got, what, 13 other books? Only 12. 12, yeah. because you did one on one of my favorite people, David Lean. Catherine Hepburn wrote the introduction, and she said to me, don't call your book David Lean. Nobody knows who he is. Call the book, have you seen, and list all his movies on the cover. And I said, that's a lot of time. Stephen, thank you so much. Can we do this again, please? Anytime. <laughs> Thanks for listening to On Cue. I invite you to visit our Facebook page, On Cue Chris Costello, for more information and for upcoming guests. Remember, each of us has a voice and a story. So until next time, share a smile, laugh often, be kind to each other, and let's help make this an even better world. <laughs>